Good morning everybody and welcome again to St John's. My name is Andrew, I'm the Assistant Minister here. I'm going to be thinking about that passage today. This is part of our series on Ecclesiastes uh, called Life Within Limits. The title of my sermon today is Let It Go. I need to open with an apology then for any parents of young children among us. Uh, since I've given that title you'll probably have that song in your head for the rest of the day. If you have never seen the movie Frozen, consider yourself lucky. But uh, I promise... I will, make, I will use it as an illustration later to make it worthwhile for you. I'd like to begin, let me see if this works. No, not today, Chris, let's go, let's try manually. Uh, I'd like to just begin with a quick test for us. Thank you. There is a glass on the screen there which is about 50% capacity. Now, if you had to say, would you say, just give me a note, would you say this is a glass that is half full? Who would describe it in that way? Great optimists among us. I know it's probably not exactly 50%. I had this conversation earlier, but if, you know, in general, um, if you were, who among us would say that? Oh, it's probably about half empty. Yes, <laughs> there's my friend over there. You are my people if you say that, because pessimism, pessimist. I think that's a, uh, that's me. So yes, glass half empty. Um, I wanted to raise it this way because I want to think about. How, what's going, how we view the world. So um, I notice as I read the paper, I watch the news and see what people put on social media, that there seems to be quite a bit of a bad feeling around about the state of the world in 2016. It's a bit of a year of pessimism. Um, the sense that overall things aren't going very well. You may have noticed this, a lot of people talk this way. So think of some of the things that have gone on recently. A little while ago there was the Brexit vote, which surprised a lot of people about the outcome there. Uh, there is an ongoing refugee crisis that seems to have no solution. Uh, endless series of terror attacks taking place around the world, even in the last few days. Uh, Donald Trump is just being Donald Trump in general. And, <laughs> and here in Australia, we just had a fairly deflating federal election experience. You know, the feeling that it didn't quite go uh, the way we thought it would. And so I find it very hard nowadays to find people who are genuinely optimistic about the future. There's lots of people here, glass half full people, but on the whole, uh, maybe a feeling that maybe there's not quite enough to feel great about the world today. And our reading in Ecclesiastes that we just had focuses on this feeling that we have and our experience of the way the world is and the state of it and how we relate to that. So, uh, if we go to the next slide, in previous weeks we've looked at the teacher of Ecclesiastes and how he's described the various ways we approach life and the things that we strive after. So things like wealth and the pursuit of um, prosperity and success. And his advice is that we should realise in this world we live in that all these things that we tend to strive after are what he calls hevel, which is a word to be translated meaningless, uh, but it means a smoke, a mist, an enigma. Actually, the, the things that we strive after don't actually, we're not able to grasp them. They don't have substance or satisfaction or enduring meaning. And life is actually something that we can't really understand. We try hard. Even, and even if we do get what we want, it seems to elude us. It doesn't satisfy us. And so Ecclesiastes is a very pessimistic, glass-half-empty book, which is why I love it. And I love reading it because it speaks to people like me who have that view of, of view, outlook on life. And this is, today the passage that we heard is probably about as pessimistic as the book gets, so it's a fantastic one. Um, 
So that, and it's a, the challenge that Ecclesiastes gives us today is about our attitude towards hope, or happiness in life, uh, and whether we actually are realistic enough about the way the world works and are able to incorporate that into our view of life. And so in chapter 6 and 7, the teacher offers a critique of the goal of happiness as something that we should strive after. So, as Mark mentioned, the pursuit of happiness is a strong theme in our culture. In, in the United States, it's famously mentioned in their Declaration of Independence as one of the fundamental human rights that people should be able to uh, pursue. And um, perhaps a noble goal, but the teacher suggests that this is actually, would suggest that this is not actually a realistic or wise view of life under the sun. And I, he would say that happiness, just as much as money or possessions or any other form of uh, success or human endeavour, is hevel. And to pursue it would not, is not actually the true uh, course of wisdom for humankind. And it's, to be clear, it's not because he thinks that he would say that it's bad to be happy or that we shouldn't enjoy life, as we've seen in other uh, topics. He would actually encourage us to enjoy life. God's given us the great things in life uh, that are there to enjoy, to eat, drink and be merry, and not to put off enjoyment until later because you may never have it. Um, but the point he's making in this passage is that though we can enjoy life, the, the world doesn't actually work in a way that makes the pursuit of happiness easy or long-lasting or in the end very satisfying for us. And that the, the, the experience of the world that we have actually is that it's a place... Uh, not of happiness, but a place of tragedy and sadness. Um, and that the pursuit of, 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 the pursuit of happiness is actually blocked by the reality of the world, um, that it's a place of indifference to our happiness. And in verse um, 1 of chapter 6, the first verse of our reading, he says this is something that actually weighs very heavily on humankind, this, um, the fact that our pursuit of happiness does, it doesn't seem to work. We find it hard to deal with the fact that when things happen to us that show that the world is not interested in us being happy um, and things that are absurd and tragic. So his example from verses 2 to 6 is that of a man who has everything in life that we think should make you happy. He's lived a long time, he has wealth, all lots of possessions, he's honoured, he has glory in a large family, 100 children... Would that make you happy? That's some, I'll leave you that to decide that. Uh, but he's had a long life, but he never gets to enjoy this. All these things he has, he doesn't enjoy. He works hard, but it goes, comes to nothing in the end. It's a tragic end to his pursuit of happiness. Uh, there was a popular song a while ago by Alanis Morissette called Ironic, which you might be familiar with, and it began with a line of very much like this uh, story from Ecclesiastes. An old man turned 98 won the lottery and died the next day. Um, he never got to enjoy this thing that he had, he waited so long for. Uh, that's not technically ironic, and a lot of people have pointed that out. It is tragic, actually. It's unfortunate. It is Hevel. It is, a, it is something that has no substance to it. And that sort of thing happens all the time. Uh, life doesn't turn out the way that our plans are, the, 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 our plans for happiness. Um, I met a man like this uh, once when I was doing chaplaincy in a hospital, and He'd, uh, had a, he was in an award recovering from a stroke that he'd had and he was finding it hard uh, to move and to talk. But the, the thing that he did tell me was that just before he had had his uh, stroke, he'd just bought a $2 million house, which he's never going to and not going to be able to enjoy and possibly never to be able to enjoy. So this sort of thing happens all the time and you will have had experiences like that in your own life of the pursuit of happiness being frustrated. And this is the sort of thing that the teacher has in mind. And he says... 
that this experience of absurdity in life and frustration is so aggravating and so discouraging that we might say that it would be better off to be a stillborn child uh, because they never experience it. And we shouldn't say, read that to say that he doesn't think it's sad when the child is uh, stillborn, but rather to point out that it doesn't seem, from the when we look at the world, that we're actually made for happiness. And the world isn't in sync with this pursuit of happiness. And from some point of view, it might be better to pass from birth to death without going through all this frustrating toil in between, which doesn't bring happiness. Um, this restful oblivion might be the best that we can hope for. Uh, it would be better than this frustrating experience that weighs heavily on us. And so for him, the pursuit of happiness is undone by the fact that the world is a frustrating and absurd place. And even more, he goes on to say that the, this, the pursuit of happiness, like the pursuit of wealth or the pursuit of pleasure or success, eludes us even as we get it. So in verse 7, he says, everyone's toil is for their mouth, yet their appetite is never satisfied. In verse 9, he says, we have this roving of the appetite that goes beyond what we see before us. And this is, you'll know this is the case. It, Happiness eludes us. You have it for a moment, but I want something more, or let me move on. We can never actually achieve it. Happiness is a never-ending pursuit. And the teacher's conclusion then is that it's hard to define what a happy life actually is. So in verse 12, he says, For who knows what is good for a person in life during the few and meaningless days they pass like a shadow? How do we know then what is worth doing? Because life is not in harmony with our pursuit of happiness. And so his wisdom in chapter 7 is about this, our response to this. And he would say that on balance, the acceptance of sadness is actually a more wise and realistic response to life than the pursuit of happiness. If you read in verse 2 of chapter 7, this is the heart of his point. He says, For death is the destiny of everyone. The living should take this to heart. So he says, in the big perspective on life, actually death is more significant than birth. A funeral, the house of mourning, is more... Um, significant than a house of feasting, which would be a wedding. And as he says finally, the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. The most wise and balanced response to the reality of life is sadness at the tragedy of it, the loss that we experience and the frustration and the inevitable passing away of everything that makes us happy. So this is a pessimistic view of life, isn't it? This is glass, less, probably less than half empty. <laughs> um, so I'll say in a moment why I don't think this is the whole story for Christians, luckily. But I think we do should think for a moment, how do we respond to this view that he's put forward today? Do we agree with it? And if we do, what do we do? How do we respond um, when we realise or accept that we do live in a sad and tragic world where if we have our eyes open, we need to accept the reality of death and take it to heart? And I think there are different ways that people respond to this reality, different ways that we take when we are faced with this and, and understand it. And I'll look at two of them and what, what Jesus would say to each of those people. So the first is what um, our glass half full people might be uh, tending to do, the optimists okay, among us. So if you're an optimist or you view, if, if this is your fundamental approach to life, that you may view what the teacher says and reject it and turn away from it towards positivity and towards the idea that things can be better in this world than they are. And that's the tendency of our whole culture, I think. Uh, modern Western culture is pretty optimistic. We're built on the belief in progress and possibility and the idea that if, you just, if we just learn more about the world and we learn how things work, we can build a better society uh, where people will truly be happy. And that's the 
the Star Trek view of the world, if you know this story. The, the whole the series and those stories are based on the idea that through technological advancement, one day we will be able to make the world a happy place and human life will be free largely from suffering um, and from frustration. So that's an optimist view. We, we, need, we can make the world a better place. We can get through um, the mist uh, of, of the tragic world we live in. Uh, seize the day and the power of positive thinking. And this, t this, is, this tends to be something that d does need a bit of work in the mind and we, it, might it might actually become a bit like um, the clip from, which I'm going to show you in a second, from a movie called Inside... Oh, sorry, can you just... Yeah, thanks. Um, this is a movie called Inside Out, which just came out last year, and uh, these characters represent the emotions inside a small girl's head and who, who drive her, um, her actions. And the, the Joy character is the main character, and she's really convinced that this girl needs to be happy all the time. So she talks to Sadness, who's also inside the girl's head. Thanks, Chris. circle of sadness. Your job is to make sure that all the sadness stays inside of it. <laughs> your job is to make sure all the sadness stays inside this circle where it can't affect your view of the world or your actions. And this is the temptation of us when we're faced with the tragedy of the world, isn't it? To ignore it, to put it away and to lock it away somewhere else. And we can, but we can see the problem with this, can't we? Uh, keeping sadness inside the circle, no, not facing the world and the difficulty in it. Um, because the fact is, if we are realistic, the world is sad and we need to acknowledge the tragedy of it and, and grieve things. One of the things that's coming a bit, becoming a bit more common nowadays is that in funerals, people tend to focus more and more on celebration of life and the good things that happen in someone's life um, and not so much acknowledging the reality of the fact that they've died and um, the sadness of it. And that, becomes, if that's pushed to its extreme, a very unhealthy attitude, and this is what this movie is getting at. And in the end, the problem with this form of optimism is it makes it very difficult to deal with the disappointment of life. And perhaps that's why we do find it perplexing in our culture when things don't turn out the way that we think they should, that the world doesn't seem to be getting better. But in some ways, it seems to be getting worse. How can this possibly be? Um, we can't uh, face that. And I want to say that Jesus actually faced head-on this kind of overly optimistic view of life and the world and the idea that we can pursue happiness and if we try really hard, we'll achieve it. So in Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 to 26, he spoke to his disciples about their life in the world. He says, Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? That's what he's saying to them there. Jesus is saying to his disciples that the life that we have been given from God is not actually just for the pursuit of happiness. It's for more than that. And actually happiness, particularly this kind of desperate grasping happiness of that character, the joy, um, it actually can be a barrier to true life and a true experience of what God wants, has made us for. And Jesus was actually offering his disciples a different way, a different pursuit of something uh, beyond uh, happiness and beyond um, the, the death that frustrates it. He was offering something in the light of the cross that is actually completely new, to give up the pursuit of happiness and actually pursue the kingdom of God, to pursue God's purposes and plans in the world um, and his future. 
And this is something that perhaps the teacher in Ecclesiastes couldn't anticipate because he would say, well, just enjoy life while you have it. Jesus is saying, while we have life, we have this for even more uh, than happiness. That there is actually a wisdom deeper uh, than pessimism. Jesus is saying there is a deeper, um, there is a genuinely new thing happening under the sun and it calls us to a new way of living. So to follow Jesus may mean that we're called to give up the pursuit of happiness altogether because, and to pursue something greater and more meaningful. And the paradox is, he says, when you give up your life, you get it back. When you lose your life to follow him, you find it again in a truer form. And suffering and the cross is actually where we might meet God and find his purpose and tr- true satisfaction in life. Uh, so that's a word, I think, for the optimists among us, that actually Jesus is calling us to more than happiness and to more than just hoping that things and will become better, but actually that we might have to go through the cross uh, to see what God's um, really offering us. So if you're an optimist, you might need to hear that. Um, the pessimists among us have a different response, perhaps, to the tragedy of the world, uh, which is perhaps to give in to that feeling of pessimism. Uh, to say, look, I can see the world is so meaningless, the world is absurd, that happiness is an illusion. Um, the only response then is I'm going to abandon the world altogether. Things are no good. I'm going to go up to the mountains and like, become a hermit uh, and just ignore the world altogether. And so there is a temptation if you, that to become bitter in the face of the suffering in the world, uh, to become cynical, to embrace a philosophy that says I'm going to ignore the world altogether. And arguably, for those of us who have seen Frozen, this is what Princess Elsa was saying when she sang the song Let It Go. Uh, and I told you I was going to bring it back. So um, like she's saying, I'm going to leave this world behind me. It's disappointed me. People have not measured up to my expectations. I'm going to build an ice palace up in the mountain and live there forever by myself um, and not engage with the world anymore. This is a, this is a temptation. Um, and Christians have often done this as well in the way we've thought about our faith. Uh, by insisting that actually what we're just hoping for is this terrible world we're going to leave and we're going to go away to heaven where things are going to be good. Um, There's an old hymn called uh, I'll Fly Away which has this sort of theme about it. Um, And Some of the words in this hymn say, uh, when the shadows of this life have gone, I'll fly away. Like a bird from prison bars has flown, I'll fly away. And the idea is we want to fly away from the world and get to somewhere better because this world is, is just a place of pain. And that's an understandable response to the pain of life. But I think, again, Jesus actually challenges this. He challenges those of us who are pessimists um, to have a different view of the world. And we can see that in the story immediately after the one I just read from Matthew 16. So in Matthew 17, verses 1 to 5, we have the story of the transfiguration. So I'll read that to you. It says, After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And there he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as the light. And just then there appeared before him Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses and one for Elijah. While he was speaking, a bright cloud covered them and a voice from the cloud said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. So the story is called the Transfiguration because it's about a change uh, in, in, the, in the physical world and a change in the perception of who Jesus was. So this was a revelation of the, of the divine reality and the nature of Jesus and the glory of God that he had in him and which came through him as a human being. And for the disciples, it was a revelation and a taste of the kingdom of God. 
And the transfiguration, I think, shows us that the life Jesus offers, uh, which he offers those who follow him through the cross, is not actually a denial or a rejection of the world. It's not about hating life or being gloomy, because this actually shows us the life that um, we're being made for. You know, Jesus is saying the world, the world shows us the world is a dark place, yes, it's gloomy and we find it hard to see meaning, but into that world the light of God has come and the glory of God in Jesus Christ can now be seen. Okay, a light has risen over this world and the point of the transfiguration is to affirm that God's life is present within our life now, within our humanity, even the, the frustration and the absurdity that we experience. Christ has come to give that a new, uh, a new light and a new hope. So we weren't made for the pursuit of happiness. We were made for more than that. We were made to be filled with the life and the glory of God himself, to be filled with his spirit and to transmit that light to others and to the whole world. So the transfiguration says to us, the world is not a hopeless place. The glory of God is present within our world now, even if we can't see it. And so we're not to reject the world and we're not to turn away from it. So this is a word for us pessimists, uh, that Jesus says there's something greater than that too, and something greater than optimism. So I think that Christians should actually neither be optimists nor pessimists, but actually rather hopeful realists about the world. Because so, there is happiness in the world, isn't there? There's great things. But there is really sadness and tragedy. And neither of those things, though, define for us the way the world is, really, and our response to us response to it. We can take them as they are then. Okay? It's good. As, a, as a Christian, you can be happy in good times, sad, truly sad in bad times, but always hopeful because of what God is doing. And I think this is a greater wisdom than the wisdom of Ecclesiastes because the teacher couldn't see this. But I think even a pessimist like him would have been happy to hear it. And he would have been happy to hear the words of the Apostle Paul when he spoke about this in Romans 8, chapter 18. And he was reflecting on the hope that we have as Christians. So Paul says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. This is beyond optimism, beyond pessimism, looking forward to future glory uh, where we will achieve what we are pursuing now a greater thing than happiness. And, but Paul encourages us in verse 25 of that uh, chapter that it's something that we, have, we are waiting for now, but we wait with hope. He says, but if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. So I'd like to pray for us now that we take in this wisdom uh, and this hope today as we think about that. Lord, we pray you would give us the wisdom and the, and the courage to face the world as it is, the good and the bad, and to have a response uh, that mirrors what Jesus has shown us, uh, that we should have hope in the face of suffering and caution in the face of optimism. We pray you would make us realistic um, but hopeful and able to live in the world in a way that shows your glory and your hope to those who need it. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.